Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head to Deepwater Bay Golf Club for a chat with Ian Layton, who was born at Kowloon Hospital in October 1951. He had a Scottish father and his mother was born in Shanghai after her mother and grandmother arrived stateless from Vladivostok following the Russian Revolution. Ian Layton spent his formative years here and describes it as an idyllic childhood before he was sent to boarding school at the age of 11. Here, as we look across the golfing green, he looks back at his childhood and the history of his family. I started by asking him when he first became a member of the golf club. Oh, I joined when I was probably a day old <laughs> because my um, maternal grandfather, Walter Kerr, was secretary and general manager of the Royal Hong Kong Golf Club. And he ensured my name went down immediately. It was a bit silly, but you know, but he did. And my father was a great golfer in the um, late 40s and 50s. So you had my grandfather on the one hand as general manager and my father, his son-in-law, he was part of the Hong Kong teams that would go and play internationally in the Asian region. So, of course, I, I grew up. I had a golf club in my hand before I could walk. And we came here often at Deepwater Bay. I love Deepwater Bay more than anywhere else in the world. And as a child, I used to play golf with my dad, then run over uh, the road into the sea and, and, and swim. And I was telling you earlier, and I don't want to become emotional, but the boy who was in the changing room had worked at the club since 1920. He was the most wonderful man. He smelt of bill cream. <laughs> I don't know why, but there was this aroma about him. And, you know, he always gave me hugs. And when I came back from boarding school, I went to boarding school at the age of 11. The first person who I wanted to see was him. And he was in his 80s by then. Oh, yes. But he was classed as the boy. He was classed as the boy. And I loved him. I really, absolutely loved him. And I was thinking the other day, what happened to him? But he might have been clever and uh, played on the stock market. I mean, so many of my parents' friends had armors who were shrewd. So when my parents' friends retired from Hong Kong and they were concerned about their armors and they would say, Ah Wong, are you, you know, you've been working for us for 30 years. Are you going to be all right? Little did they know the armors had put all their monies in stocks and shares. And there's one armor who owned three flats. She wasn't going to be poor. But a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people were desperately poor. Yeah, so describe to me, you are born here in 51. Mm. Do you know what, can you recall what your earliest memories are? Oh, yes. Up until the age of four, I've got vivid memories of living in Mount Nicholson. Strange enough, eight, nine and ten, my memories get blurred. But up to the age of four, very, very vivid. And I remember on a little tricycle out, outside our government bungalow in Mount Nicholson, I remember our armour screaming her head off one day I was probably about two, and picking me up from the grass. Well, an 18-foot python had eyed me as a nice, tasty dim sum and was getting very, very near. I had no idea because I was playing with my dinky toys. I remember that. I remember the ghastly sound of mosquitoes and no air conditioning then, so we had mosquito nets over our beds and the horrible-smelling coils. I don't know if they still have them in Hong Kong. Yeah, we do. Yes. Really? Of so there's horrible things. And I remember just how beautiful Mount Nicholson was and all these government flats and houses, bungalows were there. They only came down in the 80s as far as I know. We lived there until we went on leave. 
to a country that this mysterious country called England <laughs> and even a more mysterious country called Scotland and I was four then and I remember that that first journey on the ship which was magical and then realizing that in shops in Scotland they didn't have wormways and uh, other delicacies they didn't so, have well do you, do you know don't you know what a wormway is do you know not have you never come across wormways they're like dried plums and you suck them oh, we all had them at school in Calhoun Junior School and in KG5 Anyway, the shops in Scotland didn't have them. And the other thing that I remember is from a young age is, strange enough, mahjong will put me... You know, when you hear all the clatter, that puts me to sleep. Although a lot of people say, what a din. But our armor used to play mahjong, and I used to sit out with... So it's a very comforting sound for you. For me, it's a very comforting yeah. sound. Tell um, me about your armors. Well, we only had one. I wish my mother was alive today so I can say, how did you find our Ying? But Armas were engaged really by word of mouth. But she came to Mount Nicholson about six weeks before I was born. My parents, unlike some other families, didn't have two or three Armas. They had one. And her name was our Ying. So she must have been in her coming up 60 then in 1951. And I remember she had gold teeth because I used to tease her and make her smile and I used to see... The, do you know why they had gold teeth in those days? It was their reserve for cash because inflation in China when they came over in forty nine meant their money was worthless. How did they dress? Oh, traditionally white tops and black slacks. Many of the armors... I can't remember if Ah Ying... Maybe Ah Ying had a ponytail going right down. She was the salt of the earth. My parents both worked. Oh, she wore two green jade bracelets that clattered. I remember that. My mother went back to working pretty soon after I was born. My mother worked for Shell, and my dad, at that time, had left Swires and was working for the Hong Kong government, Marine Department. So I was with her every day. She would take me to the market. We would watch Chinese opera, which I love to this day, because she would tell me who's doing what and who was in love with who and so forth. And I loved it. She was the kindest lady imaginable. And my parents had a dilemma, because academically I was a disaster in Hong Kong because there were too many distractions. So my father realised I had to be sent away to boarding school. But my mother knew how upset I was by leaving Hong Kong, and especially the close bond uh, with Ah Ying. So she didn't tell me that Ah Ying, by then, in 1963, was going to uh, retire to Canton. I never knew. I didn't know until the following summer. And I was heartbroken. I often tried to explain to people back in England who have no conception of what life was like in the Far East, the close bonds, you know, with your armour. And some friends I've heard recently are so desperate to find their their armour. If my armour was alive today, she'd be 130, you know. But I wish she was, because I would like to thank her. When you went to the market with her, what would you be choosing? And did you find that by osmosis, really, that you were speaking Cantonese? Oh, yes. Because at, at that sort of age, you pick up Cantonese or any language, like blotting paper. What I do remember in Queen's Road East, that market's not in there anymore. I think it's a block of flats. But the smell was horrendous. But like a good Chinese armour, she had a budget and she was going to get fresh vegetables and fresh fish. And the smell of what? Fish. Oh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> it was so strong. Seeing the eyes stare at you. But I was fascinated. Fascinated. Did I help carry things? Maybe I did. Maybe I did. 
She certainly held my hand so I wouldn't run off. I was terrible for running off and snooping. Now, yes. you have Russian heritage. Tell me, tell yes. me about your background. Well, my great-grandmother, who was born just outside Riga, when would she have been born? 1884, I think. And tell me where Riga is. Oh, in, in Latvia. But then it was part of the great Russian Empire. And she married young, 18, and she and her husband, Adolf, and I, I, I tended when I was at school not to mention my great-grandfather, was called Adolf. But around about 1900, there was a lot of concern about the spread of communism. And the two of them um, decided to, to go to Vladivostok. I think he worked for a sort of group like Jardine's that had a base in Vladivostok, and he was an engineer. So off they went by the Trans-Siberian Railway, and my grandmother was born in 1907 in Vladivostok. She had a little brother, but he died, Boris. And then they had a very, very happy life there. But, of course, the Russian Revolution started in October 1917, and... In Vladivostok, it, it turned into a, a stronghold for the Bolsheviks. And one day, my great-grandfather was doing voluntary work in a hospital on his white stallion, and all the men were ushered out and shot. So he was shot by the, by the uh, Bolshevik soldiers. The commandant of the Bolsheviks went to see my great-grandmother and returned his gold watch. And um, I often wonder where that gold watch is, what happened to it. But my great-grandmother said, what about his stallion? And he said, I'm sorry, but the, your husband's white stallion is of use to us. And he would have been shot for what reason? The Bolsheviks just took all the men. It was a Red Cross hospital. So it's appalling what they did. They ordered all the men out of that hospital, about 30, and they shot them. One of the things I must do is contact the Red Cross, actually, to try and get more information. But my grandmother, my great-grandmother, decided to go to Shanghai. You know, within weeks, decided that she was stateless. She was known as a white Russian. The fact that you do have this exodus yes. down to Shanghai, was Shanghai seen as this international welcoming city? Shanghai was one of the few places in the world that accepted you if you were stateless. And they were stateless. The only papers they had were in, were in Russia. But a nurse, a friend of my great-grandfather's who was murdered, knew people in Shanghai, in the Jewish community. Now, my great-grandmother was a Lutheran. How she got closely involved with people in the Jewish community, I do not know. But she had a few names, and one of them was the Kaduris. So when she arrived in Shanghai, my great-grandmother, she immediately was taken into the heart of the Jewish community of Shanghai. And of course, the... Kadoris are of Iraqi Jewish heritage, yes. and uh, here in Hong Kong, you of course have China Light and Power, the yes. peninsula, among many yes. other business interests owned by the Kadoris. The Kadoris and others in the Jewish community were exceptionally kind to my great grandmother and my grandmother. They couldn't speak any English at all. My grandmother went to a French convent to learn French and English. My great grandmother's English was always dreadful. My mother said she used to pronounce words in a funny way. A catastrophe was cats are strophe. I wish I could hear her say that, cats are strophe. And then through the Jewish community, she was introduced to her next husband, Paul Romberg, and she had a particularly happy second marriage. I think she had a very happy first marriage, but her second marriage was also particularly happy. My mother adored her, quotes, grandfather, 
He had a business, but he was also, also honorary consul for Estonia. And in 1939, Germany annexed Estonia. And if you were a citizen of Estonia, you were automatically deemed to be German. So whether they liked it or not, they had German papers, which meant they were not put into camp. Hong Kong, as you know, had prison of war camps and Stanley and Shamshu Po. In Shanghai, you had four or five civil internment centers, not prison of war camps as such. So my mother and her English father, her Vladivostok-born mother, her sister, were all put in Lungwa camp. Lungwa was the biggest one. But my great-grandmother wasn't in camp, and she would write letters to her daughter. Who was, so there was three or four miles, and they would be talking about the weather. Well, it's daft, because it must have been the same weather in, in the city of Shanghai. Whether it was code or not, I don't know. But I've still got all those letters written on um, Red Cross paper. You would, Great Granny would write on Red Cross into the camp. My granny would reply in the reverse. I actually must go to the museum in London to see if they want copies. My grandmother on her bicycle, looking like Mary Poppins, was, was cycling everywhere in Shanghai. I mean, it's extraordinary. She must have been stopped to ask what her papers were, but there she produced her German papers. So uh, I have all these photographs of my, my family in Shanghai. What now, do you think? I mean, you, you are somebody who was born in Hong Kong. You then um, studied law, but you've got this incredible bond to Hong Kong. What do you think about, like, for example, your Russian heritage? Oh, I'm fascinated. And I want to write a book about Shanghai. And all the stories that I was told growing up about my family. The war ended in 1945. I only knew a few years ago that people stayed in the camp for about two weeks. They didn't suddenly, on the day of the liberation, rush home because there was nothing there. The furniture was in storage. The staff all came back. My grandfather went to stay with the Kaduris in Marble Hall uh, immediately, and they helped him, you know, setting up his business again. Then my mother in 1947 met my father my mother was to use a funny word a stenographer working for Shell um, as a European secretary so it's a sort of a, st- a typist of sorts yes they call them stenographers then mm. um, and Shell was a very generous employer so they would send their European girls down to Hong Kong for a week's holiday everything was paid and in 1947 she and about three friends came down on ship and stayed I think they stayed at the YMCA in Salisbury Road in Kowloon, or the, the women's version of, of it on Hong Kong side, I'm not quite sure. On their return journey on the ship called the Fat Shan, going to Shanghai, one of her friends said, have you seen the really dashing, handsome Scotsman? And my mother said, no. And so her friend Helen said, well, you must meet him, you must meet him. And they, they did meet, and it was love at first sight. The problem was that my father was engaged oh. <laughs> back in Scotland, to his girlfriend, who was in the same class since they were nine. And, but my father knew that this girl was for him, my mother. So my mother was anxious to come to Hong Kong. My father was still working for China Navigation until 1950. She came down at the end of 48, and they didn't live together. No way. Mum was born in 27. Yes, she, oh, nothing about it. She was only 20 years old. She came to Hong Kong. Her mother and sister couldn't attend the wedding. Because if you wanted to leave Shanghai, you have to get a permit. Now, Mum's permit came through quickly, but her permit for her mother and her sister didn't come through in time for her wedding. But there were various Shanghai friends who were at her wedding. And where did she get married? In St Andrew's Church in Kowloon. But my grandfather couldn't get out of Shanghai 
until 1952. The authorities wouldn't let him, and I don't know why. This is my mother's father, called Walter Kerr, who was English. And he had gone to Shanghai in 1921, was a landscape architect, and had a business doing gardens for people, and then he joined... Oh, wow. in Shanghai. In Shanghai. Well, he was an expert. He studied at Kew. He studied at Kew right. in England. Superb. So was it, were these very English gardens? Or? Oh, yes. <laughs> Just like Holmes in Surrey. <laughs> Those houses still exist in Shanghai. What about the gardens? Yes, a lot of. I mean, in 1994, I went back to the family home in Shanghai with my mother, and there were 45 people living in the house, and they were worried that they were coming back to repossess it. Anyway, my mother couldn't get over that the rooms were all the same, and she said, I wonder what my bedroom's like. And we went up a flight of stairs into a room, and the shutters were closed. And then she opened them, and my mother said, Oh, my goodness, the garden next door is exactly as my mother remembered it when she last saw it in 1947. So this was the Kerr family home? Yes, yes, it's our home. It was a traditional Chinese home, actually. But I remember my mother just being shocked in 1994 and saying, But the garden across the... Is exactly as it was in my childhood. So, have you inherited any of those gardening genes? No, oh, 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 I love gardening. <laughs> I love gardening. My um, my grandfather was allowed to leave Shanghai, eventually, and then he, through people like the Keswicks, Jardines, and what have you, was told the job is yours to be secretary of general manager of the Royal Hong Kong Golf Club. The Kuduris wanted him to join their new project at Sekong. Have you been to Kuduri Farm? And he said, well, because they had just started their project at Sekong, and it was more showing Chinese farmers how to improve their livestock. Yes, well, they had the agricultural... Yeah, the emphasis, yes. The yes. was more... And my grandfather said, look, you're not ready yet to to really need my skills, because his skills were, were in the botanical side. So my grandfather thought, well, no, he golf course was in a ruinous state after the, the war. I mean, even here at, at Deepwater Bay, the land you see in front of you was all agriculture for the Japanese soldiers. And it was the same in Fanling. It was in a ruinous state. Anyway, he set about, during the next 18 years, to restore it. He so how do you do that? I don't know how he did it, but, but he was very smart, because he realised, first of all, at Fanling, he had to have the local villagers on board, because they gave the employees... And he also had to import trees and what have you from China and grass. They had terrible problems getting the right grass from other parts of the world. What grass do you need for a golf course? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But well, whatever grass it was, it was not the right grass. No, but I mean, but in terms of post-war supplies, we need some we need some golf know. course I, grass, please. I was, I was thinking the other day, and you know, um, people came out of Shamshu Po and Stanley and went back to their jobs uh, in government. They must have, their health must have been wrecked. Yes. But how did they set up 
all the clubs so quickly. You know, within two years, Hong Kong had a surplus again. It was absolutely amazing. But I would have also said, with you being born in 51, and you've got these early memories, Wan Chai, for example, was incredibly bombarded. Oh, yes. I mean, oh, you I know. remember. I was acutely aware of the Japanese occupation. And we as well, children... the aftermath. Yes, we as children were rewarded if we found Japanese bullets and helmets. And I remember in Kowloon finding a helmet and getting the equivalent of $50. I don't know what happened to it. What I do remember so young is the fact that Hong Kong just started building again, rebuilding. What do I remember from those early years? Probably the airport, the airport that runway that, that run, jut, juts out into the sea. That wasn't open until 1959. And dependent on the wind and where a plane was flying in from, if you were in a car, you had to stop because the plane landed on the road. Did you know that? <laughs> and I loved, I loved that. I didn't mind if we were there for ages. No, it must have been fascinating. It was wonderful. The, the, the engines, the planes made a, a tremendous noise, and there was no terminal as such. You went to the fence, wide fence. I don't remember a terminal in 56, 57, and the planes would land and the planes would, would take off. It was a wonderful time. And the, and the other thing is, if you were going towards Hebe Haven, you went up a hill, and on the left there was... And, and no one can find a photograph of Kowloon Dairy's milk bottle. It was on the hillside... There were cows there as well. And this, as tall as this building was a milk bottle, and I loved that. But no one can find a picture. And I've been in touch with Calendary, no one can find it. I wish I could find that picture. But talking about cows, that was a thing that intrigued me because at Pock Fulham, again, coming here to this club, we would drive via Pock Fulham, and we would often stop with my parents so I could look at the cows. And at the age of six, I thought, how could 20 cows supply Hong Kong with milk? And I, I never realised, of course, a lot of the uh, milk was actually shipped in, I suppose, refrigerated. Great time. Have you, do you know about PG Farm? Do you, have you heard about PG Farm? PG Farm was, was situated at the entrance of Ocean Park now, just up there. PG stood for Parisian Grill, owned by the Landau family. It was a restaurant in Central. They like to grow their own vegetables, so they leased land where Ocean Park is now, the entrance, and that's where they did all their vegetables. But someone in the family said, you know, we can make money of this because if we turned it into a little theme park, like a mini Disney world with animals and funny things, you know, snake, a snake with three heads and formaldehyde and donkeys and pythons in, in cages, Europeans would love it especially the children, I absolutely loved it. You know, to spend a few hours there was, was fantastic. And this and was we, PG Farm? PG Farm, PG Farm. Which became a bit of an amusement park. Yes, yes. If you speak to anyone my age... So you'd have donkeys? Yeah, donkey rides. The, the python terrified me, this huge sort of 25-foot thing in a cage. And the bottles of piglets, you know, three-headed piglet. Oh, God, terrified me. But remember, in those days, and, and, and this is very important... When I was a kid, you had the three sides. You had Hong Kong Island, you had Kowloon, and you had the New Territories. So a trip from Kowloon, where we lived, we lived in Cornwall Street, which is Kowloon Tong, a trip to come to PG Farm was, I mean, that was just terrific, because you came over by the vehicular ferry. It was a grand day out. It was a fabulous day out. I mean, I actually would come here for a meal and then go home. Bearing in mind my father worked in the Marine Department, 
and was a ship's captain, he didn't seem to like sailing. So we we had the very occasional treat of going out on a friend's boat. But that was only very, very occasional. And I used to say, why don't we own a boat? And my father would say, it's just a lot of fooey and too much money. Well, also, it's a bit of a busman's holiday for him, isn't it? For him, it was a busman's yeah. holiday. We had very good friends called the Bowers. At that time, you could be a member of the Stanley Prison Beach Club. Even if you had nothing to do with the prison. Oh, I loved, I loved those trips. And so I loved going out to Fanling. We would go out there for weekends. And it was so quiet. And you would hear the roosters in the morning at five o'clock in the morning. I do remember something very frightening, is that there were so many dogs that had rabies. And the dogs were in a terrible state. They were malnourished. I remember going out with my grandfather at Fanling and my father. We were walking, and I suddenly saw some puppies... Now, uh, I love dogs, and I, I ran towards them, and then my father shouted at me, stop, stop, because the mother was foaming at the mouth. Now, I didn't know that's an indication of rabies, and my, my father said, now, stop, don't look at the mother's eyes, to put your head down, and walk back very, very slowly. I remember, I remember that. At a, at a, I was probably about four or five. And probably that same weekend, I was, I was with him, and a very old Chinese lady was pushing a cart with, God knows, tons of stuff on. And she tripped and she fell, and my father went and spoke to her in Cantonese. My father's Cantonese was very good. My mother was fluent in Cantonese. And he helped her up. And she was embarrassed, the old lady, and she, she was bleeding, and he helped her. And then afterwards I said, Dad, why is that old lady who's about 90? She probably wasn't as old as that, but she looked terribly old and she was wearing the hacker-type hat. And, so, and he said, well, she probably came to Hong Kong in '49. maybe no family. She has to work. She'll work until she dies. Now, I've never forgotten that image. It upset me terribly. Yes, I was going to say, as a little boy, because, you're, you're, in fact, you're living quite a privileged existence in Hong Kong, and yet you've got all of this post-'49 influx of uh, refugees yes, coming in yes. and, and abject poverty. Abject poverty. My mother worked her socks off at orphanages. My mother promised that with her photographs from my book, it was conditional on me making a contribution once my book is sold, and I will be doing that for Chinese orphanages. I was very conscious of children, who, especially out in the New Territories, who had not, no, no clothes, you know, far less no shoes. When I was about five or six, I started helping my mother take out clothes to... It was called the Miss Dibden Orphanage, Chinese Orphanage in Sha Tin. But it used to upset me a lot, seeing all these children whose faces were at the fence looking out. And I started having very bad nightmares, uh, and Mum stopped it. But, and this kind of goes full circle, in the newspaper a few days ago, a lady who was taken to England from probably that orphanage... As yes, a baby. Claire Martin. Isn't Claire it? Martin, and her. She's coming out to Hong Kong on Monday. I do want to meet her, but I won't be able to meet because I'm going back to England. I do want to meet her because you know, speaking to a child that my mother may have held will help her. It will also help me in a way because I associate going to orphanage as a, a time that I found frightening and upsetting. Only because there were children my age who had nothing. And there I was, being able to swim every day, playing tennis every day. It seemed, it seemed so terribly unfair. Which leads me on to another story, I'm sorry about this, <laughs> that um, I said to my father one day, you know, it's, 
so unfair that in Hong Kong you have the very rich and you have the very poor. And, and my dad said, well, you know, that's life. Um, but we all respect one another. Um, uh, my father was a Christian, and he said, in God's eyes, we're all the same. You may have a different eye shape, you may have different color, but we're all the same. And we were out on the beach here in, at Deepwater Bay. And he said, you know, if you have a coolie, the one who does the rickshaw, and he's walking on that beach barefoot, and an hour later, Hong Kong's wealthiest Taipan, he also walks along there barefoot. Can you tell which one is the rich, which one is the poor? I said, no, no. He said, no, no, you can't, you can't. We all leave our footprints in the sand. And that's why my book is called Footprints Left in Hong Kong. My thanks to Ian Layton, who's looking to publish his recollections of the 1950s and 60s in Hong Kong. The book will be called Footsteps Left in Hong Kong, and that's going to be published later this year. And I look forward to catching up with Ian in the months to come to hear a bit more. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.